You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denverite, and Westward. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading Clowning for Good by Adrian Michael. From Denverite, I'll be reading All In Motel is still set to be a boutique motel, but the community amenities have been cut from the project by Desiree Matherin. And Denver could have 12 stories of housing near Denny's on West Alameda. For now, the city is getting temporary tiny homes by Kyle Harris. From Westward, I'll be reading, Former inmate Christopher Tanner's medical nightmare costs Colorado $8 million, by Michael Roberts. And Pickleball Construction Greenlit Again in Centennial Under Strict New Rules, by Katie Cheshire. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. This first article is from the Denver Voice. Clowning for Good, by Adrian Michael. I never imagined I would be clowning, said Michelle Gaddis, but I did love telling jokes and seeing people smile. The ability to tell jokes would help Gaddis's transition into an industry that she didn't expect. I had just experienced a lot of unexpected deaths, she said. My favorite cousin in 2013, my mom in 2014, and my sister in 2015. Since it was back-to-back deaths, it was hard to heal in the grieving process. I was asked if I would like to join the clown unit of the Shriners Daughters of the Imperial Court, an affiliate of the Prince Hall Shriners, and I agreed since it was something different, something to occupy my time. Gaddis performs as Blah Awesome, a portmanteau of Blah and Awesome, and has been clowning since 2017. As I started creating my clown image, I thought about my love of plants and flowers, and I said to myself, I want to blossom. I was going through so much, and some days I felt blah, and other days I felt awesome. Thus, how my name was created, Gaddis said. Gaddis said it took her four months of studying the art of clowning, gathering props, learning to apply makeup, and piecing together her wardrobe. It paid off when she was awarded Best New Clown in her first year attending the Imperial Convention. Gaddis's daughter, Mashika, has been performing as Rhythm the Clown since 2020. Her clown name comes from her love of dancing. However, she didn't always share the same enthusiasm as her mother. I wasn't interested in clowning, Mashika said, but I gave it a shot and our first appearance went great. We had so much fun, so I stuck with it. The kids we met were so happy to see us. We had lots of interaction. It was great to brighten people's day, and that was so rewarding. Both Michelle and Mashika enjoy seeing people gravitating to them as clowns. We're bringing energy in life. Putting smiles on somebody's face just makes the world of a difference. There's so much negative stuff going on in the world, and it's best to bring positivity, Michelle said. Blah Awesome and Rhythm attended the 6th Annual Aurora Day Backpack Giveaway in August, where they were able to showcase the energy and positivity that brings so many smiles to kids and adults. They helped pass out backpacks, taught kids how to do the Cupid Shuffle line dance, and took lots of photos with kids. 
Their appearance was to make sure the narrative of clown changes. Horror movies such as It and Terrifier have contributed to the fear of clowns. In an October 2014 article in the Hollywood Reporter magazine, Clowns of America International President Glenn Kohlberger said, Hollywood makes money, sensationalizing the norm. They can take any situation, no matter how good or pure, and turn it into a nightmare. And we do not support in any way, shape, or form any medium that sensationalizes or adds to cholerophobia or clown fear. According to a 2022 study published in the International Journal of Mental Health, about 53.5% of adults suffer from coolrophobia, an extreme fear of clowns. We do get people who tell us they don't like clowns, but as time goes on, they get closer to us, said Michelle. My cousin was afraid of clowns, and upon learning I was going to be a clown, told me to make sure my energy is right. Clowns are spooky, and their energy isn't always good. So, we listen to upbeat music when we're getting ready. We get into our zone, dance, and have a good time just so our energy projects that we don't want anyone to have a phobia of clowns. Both Michelle and Mashika want people to know that they're not evil people. Don't be afraid of me. I'm a person, and my clown attire is a persona, said Mashika. Along with the changing narrative of evil clowns, there's also a stigma that there aren't many female clowns. There are only women in our clown unit, said Michelle. I never thought about it. There's men when we go to conventions, but within our unit, it's just women. Growing up, I don't think I knew of a woman clown, but now there are a lot of them. According to the online recruitment service Zipia, 61.5% of clowns are women, 36 being women of color. However, only 10% of that makeup is black or African-American women. There was a little black girl that I saw today that told me she wants to be a clown. She was so adorable, and I told her I would love to have her learn to be a clown, said Michelle. It's a great feeling knowing we could change the world with this. We're changing the narrative and making clowns more positive for black girls to see, Mashika said. At one point, it was frowned upon for people to be clowns. But when I tell people that I'm clowning today and they see it, they'll say such things as, that's cool. Or, I didn't know that was you, and it's a cool feeling. For both Michelle and Mashika, clowning is a hobby, but they aspire to do more with their craft eventually. It would be cool if we could set up an event at least once a month and have kids come. I really want to set up a stage for the kids to come in and be entertained, said Michelle. As of right now, Michelle and Mashika are clowns who dance and tell jokes, but they're looking to establish new skill sets. They've also been thinking about incorporating magic tricks and making balloon animals. I'm trying to figure out what's going to be entertaining and have thought about doing shows and skits, Michelle said. We get so many people asking us to appear at events, and I think the more we get out, the more people start knowing us and realize who we are. People see us and say, oh, those are the clowns. The August backpack giveaway was highly successful for the community and brought smiles to kids and adults alike. According to Michelle Mashika, the moment Blah Awesome and Rhythm arrived, people swarmed to them, and the atmosphere amongst the crowd was extremely positive. I just want to make a difference wherever we can. If we can touch one person, then we've done something, Michelle said. The next two articles are from Denverite. 
All In Motel is still set to be a boutique motel, but the community amenities have been cut from the project by Desiree Matherin. Plans to rebrand and redevelop the All In Motel on East Colfax are moving forward, but the project will no longer feature a new building that was meant to be an amenity to the community. On Monday, City Council voted 8-5 to five to amend the 3015 East Colfax Urban Redevelopment Area, which encompasses the motel, to remove an additional building that was supposed to include 27 more hotel rooms and affordable commercial space for community members. The all-in site has been a site of ups and downs, going back to the late 1950s when it was called the Fountain Inn. The historically registered building was host to the Gold Room Restaurant in the late 60s, and in 2006 it was home to the 70s-themed Rock Bar. It was purchased in 2016 by Brian Torber, and since then Torber has had his own ups and downs with the property. Torber initially intended to use the site for micro-apartments, but then City Council member Albus Brooks convinced Torber to keep the all-in as a hotel. Torber previously said that finding lenders to fund the project was difficult because of the idea and the location. As Torber struggled, the all-in continued to fall into disrepair. In 2020, Torber reached out to the Denver Urban Renewal Authority, an agency tasked with identifying blighted areas in need of revitalization, seeking tax increment financing, or TIF dollars, to help fund the redevelopment project. The all-in met several criteria deemed deeming the structure blighted, including unsafe conditions and the existence of substantial physical underutilization or vacancy of buildings. DURA agreed to make the site an urban redevelopment area, and in June of 2022, City Council agreed to the plan, but several residents and council members questioned using TIF dollars to fund a hotel when the city was in need of housing especially considering the all-in accepted housing vouchers for low-income residents or those experiencing homelessness. While Council Member Paul Cashman and former members Robin Nike and Candy, Candy Sidabaka disagreed with the proposal, the other council members and many nearby neighbors said the redevelopment was in line with Dura's main purpose, revitalization. Residents said that the change would make the area safer, by having a pool and retail space for local businesses, residents said it adds value to the neighborhood. Others said having a hotel on East Colfax would give people visiting National Jewish Health and musical talent playing at nearby venues a closer place to stay. The project was set to receive $3.5 million from TIF funding. Torber would revamp the all-in, creating 54 rooms at 265 square feet. Plus, he would construct the new building with 27 additional rooms at about 335 square feet each. There would also be a restaurant, a pool that could be used by nearby residents via day passes, and, potentially, a coffee shop. The project would cost about $31.2 million, but that didn't work out. The firm expected to help finance the project backed out leaving Torber in a similar position to when he first purchased the property. After a prolonged search, Torber found a lender, but it did not consider the additional building and retail options as financially viable. The change to the project required a change to the urban redevelopment area. 
This particular amendment to the scope of the project may be the first in Dura's history, said Dura Executive Director Tracy Huggins. The new plan presented to Council on Monday only included the redevelopment of the existing hotel structure. Renovation will be done to the 54 rooms and there will be a ground floor restaurant. The amendment doesn't change the boundaries of the urban redevelopment area and Dura is set to give $3.3 million to the project. During Monday's hearing, Council members Serena Gonzalez Gutierrez, Chantel Lewis, and Sarah Parati again questioned using TIF dollars to fund a hotel when the city is in need of affordable housing. I don't believe that utilizing $3.3 million in city tax increment financing for a private hotel for visitors to our city aligns with our city's urgent needs today, Parati said. To me, it is inexcusable for us to use that funding towards anything other than housing. Council member Amanda Sandoval said she agreed to the plan in 2022 because the proposed affordable retail and spaces for residents, but without the pool and the extra building, those things wouldn't be happening anymore. When I think of urban renewal authority, I think of community benefits as well, Sandoval said. We're using our urban renewal authority for a hotel and a retail restaurant. I'm 100% supportive of adaptive reuse, but using an urban renewal authority for that outside of not having affordable commercial space designated for use by local businesses, artists, and nonprofits, that's what we approved. Huggins said even if the initial project only included the hotel, Dora would have still agreed to make the site an urban area redevelopment because the area is blighted. Blight doesn't have a tendency to stay within the four corners of the properties. It impacts the other areas as well. So the most significant benefit that this redevelopment will provide is that of blight elimination and historic preservation, Huggins said. The most fundamental thing that we are trying to do is address the, and this is the term out of statute, the blighting conditions. We would have looked to participate if we can eliminate blight. That is our core mandate. Sandoval also asked Torber what he intended to do with the space where the other building was to go. He said a portion would remain a parking lot and the other portion he would like to activate as a community outdoor space. Torber said the area will be landscaped and added that folks could hang out in the green space. Sandoval pushed back, noting that the location of the hotel directly on East Colfax isn't that inviting of a street to sit and relax. Torber said the goal isn't to keep the space as a parking lot, and in the future he would consider putting a new building there, if the finances were available and if the community was interested. Our intent is to stabilize this corner and do something that we are able to do today and then work with the community on imagining what else is suitable in that area. Torber responded. During the public hearing, about nine people addressed council with only one person speaking against the project. Nearby neighbors spoke in favor, especially considering the property is still experiencing deterioration. I was disappointed when the original plans fell through. However, I think the smaller footprint would in some ways serve the neighborhood better, said one of the speakers. This particular property is as other people have said, really a blight on the neighborhood. It's in disrepair. It's boarded up. It's fenced. I do support the redevelopment generally, and I think this project will return this building to its original character. 
Other speakers echoed concerns about safety surrounding the property and the need for local accommodations on East Colfax. Huggins added that Torber, in the future, could add that additional building. If he requires TIF dollars for the funding, the plans would have to come back to City Council for approval. If Torber uses private dollars, he could move forward with the build without approval. At the end, Gonzalez Gutierrez, Luis Parati, Sandoval, and Councilmember Flor Alvidrez voted against the proposal. Huggins said getting the amendment approved by Council was the final step for the development project. Now they're ready to move forward and construction is expected to begin by the end of the year. This is a really important project for this section of the corridor in order to help advance a more broad revitalization, Huggins said. Denver could have 12 stories of housing near Denny's on West Alameda. For now, the city's getting temporary tiny homes by Kyle Harris. Next to the Denny's in Baker sits a half-acre empty patch of concrete that's zoned for big things, up to 12 stories of residential units that could include hundreds of permanent homes. Under Mayor Mike Johnston, though, the parking lot that sits in the highly trafficked armpit of West Alameda Avenue and Interstate 25 will, for now, likely be used for the small and the temporary, one of his micro-communities, part of a larger plan to house 1,000 people currently living on the streets in a mix of pallet homes, tiny homes, motel rooms, and rented apartments by the end of the year. In many cases, these new homes will be short-term solutions as people wait to move into income-restricted housing that is scarce in Denver. Some people may make the transition. Others may move back to the streets. SEH, a Minnesota-based employee-owned engineering, architecture, and planning firm that specializes in working with governments to help solve complicated problems, has submitted concept plans to the city. The company has not responded to requests for comment for this story. The concept plans are a first-step proposal, works in progress to send to the city's Department of Community Planning and Development to determine what's possible on the land. The documents are subject to change. The submitted plans offer two possibilities for the community. One includes 40 pallet shelters with a community building. The other includes 21 temporary managed community units plus three accessible units and a meeting house for people to gather, along with two areas for dogs to relieve themselves. Both options would be temporary, fenced in from public view and given top priority by community planning and development. The agency is allowing projects submitted under the Mayor's Homeless State of Emergency Plan to jump the line ahead of market rate projects in the permitting process. A building up to 12 stories on nearly half an acre of land could provide a lot more needed housing than a few dozen tiny homes. For comparison, Flora, a 12-story building on a half-acre lot in the Rhino Art District, boasts more than double the number of units the micro-community could hold. In total, 92 apartments, along with 15,000 square feet of commercial space. The Colorado Department of Transportation lot is adjacent to other empty parcels owned by other private property owners. If all of the lots were purchased by a single developer, a 12-story building on the site could conceivably include hundreds of units. Unless such a building were publicly financed as deeply affordable housing, 
it wouldn't make a huge immediate impact on Denver's homelessness emergency, though even more market rate supply would likely help stabilize long-term rents, which have been rising in recent years. And building in Denver isn't fast. Negotiating the sale of the land, the design and permitting of the building, and construction could take years. And as the Johnston administration sees it, people living in public spaces need housing now, even if it's tiny and temporary. Kathy Alderman, a spokesperson for the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless, says the city would be smart to find nonprofit developers who could create a plan for the state-owned plot of land in the next, next 18 months while it's being used as a micro-community. They could use it in the interim, but with the goal of converting it into affordable housing for people exiting the cycle of homelessness, maybe even the very people who were living in the micro-community there, Alderman said. The following articles are from Westward. Former inmate Christopher Tanner's medical nightmare costs Colorado $8 million by Michael Roberts. In 2021, Christopher Tanner sued six employees of the Denver Reception and Diagnostic Center, a state jail facility, over the outcome of a medical crisis he suffered on their watch. His suit claimed that the medical team's delayed and inept response to bacterial pneumonia that struck while he was incarcerated nearly killed him, and doctors ultimately wound up amputating most of his hands and feet. Two years later, the Colorado Department of Corrections has agreed to pay $8 million to settle the complaint, and Tanner finds the decision appropriate. I'm glad that Colorado has ultimately taken responsibility for the dismissiveness of the medical staff in regard to my need for help, he says. I think that the majority of the public that have no experience with the criminal justice system would be shocked to learn how incarcerated people are often treated. The settlement, which was approved September 20th by the State Claims Board, is among the highest in Colorado for a case involving an incarcerated person's accusations of shoddy health care. The total appears to be second only to the $11 million verdict a 2014 jury awarded Ken McGill over delayed treatment for a stroke while in custody at a facility in Jefferson County. Still, Anna Holland Edwards of Denver-based Holland Holland Edwards and Grossman, PC, who represents Tanner in conjunction with co-counsel Matt Laird of Denver's Thomas Keel and Laird, LLC, doesn't want the takeaway from the case's resolution to be entirely about dollars and cents. Settlements like this prove that people do care about these kinds of abuses, she says. Tanner has a history of mainly minor criminal offenses, including theft, that Holland Edwards connects to his being hooked on heroin. Because of his addiction and short sentence, only a few months in length, he was sent to the Denver Diagnostic and Reception Center in January of 2020 so that he could receive drug treatment while serving his time. That March, however, Mr. Tanner woke up with a fever of over 105 degrees, Holland Edwards recaps. He began begging to go to the hospital, and the nurses who were going in to see him seemed to really think that he should go to the hospital too, but they were overruled by higher-ups over and over again. At the time, Holland Edwards continues, the prison system was really worried about COVID, which hit the state hard that month and quickly began running rampant, but hadn't yet started spreading in Colorado Department of Corrections facilities. 
Only a very few people were willing even to go in and see him, and the ones who did saw that he needed hospitalization. But instead, they only gave him Tylenol and an IV, which doesn't treat bacterial pneumonia. As a result, Tanner kept getting worse and worse, Holland Edwards says. He was passing out and basically became nonverbal. His main caretaker during the 12-hour period during which his condition cratered was his cellmate who was locked in with him, she adds. He had to hold up the IV bag. He had to carry Chris downstairs when he got an x-ray. The whole time, Chris thought he was dying, and he very nearly did. To make matters worse, Tanner says, his loved ones weren't immediately informed of his situation. When I was finally transferred to the hospital... Despite the DOC website stating a policy assuring family notification in such a situation, DOC made no attempts to contact anyone in my family, he notes. Indeed, Debbie Tanner, Chris's wife of 23 years, didn't learn he had been admitted to an area hospital until he'd been there for three days, and then the individuals who reached out to her were a social worker and a nurse in the intensive care unit rather than a Department of Corrections staffer. According to Tanner, they called to let her know that his physicians didn't expect him to pull through and encouraged her to get permission from prison officials to say goodbye. Ultimately, Tanner beat the odds, but the cost of survival was high. The medications he received essentially caused most of his fingers and toes to die. In the end, his entire right hand was amputated, as well as most of his left hand and the front section of both feet. None of these surgeries should have been necessary. One of the hardest parts was hearing expert opinions of doctors that reviewed my case, hearing them state that if I had gotten the level of care that I needed, I would not have lost my hands and feet, Tanner reveals. Today, Tanner's life is a lot smaller than it was, Holland Edwards points out. He wasn't supposed to be in jail for very long, and he had job prospects and a job offer. He formerly worked as a surveyor, so he had skills. But now he often has to use a wheelchair. He can walk some, but he has intense pain any time he has to stand up. Nonetheless, he's resilient and works really hard, she says. He likes to tinker with things, like fixing bikes, and he's figured out some workarounds. But with one arm that has no hand, and the other hand only having a small portion of his fingers, He just fundamentally can't do many things he could before. He's plagued by pain and the amputations get wounds. During his fight to regain the independence he has, he's had to be constantly medicalized. Holland Edwards hopes the settlement, which led to the cancellation of a jury trial scheduled for March of 2024, will allow Tanner to explore other prosthetics and get a house that's retrofitted for him, so he can get around more easily and get a car that he can more easily drive. But he wouldn't have needed any of those things if this hadn't happened to him. According to Tanner, the events that led to the amputations should be put in a larger context. DOC has the lives and well-being of so many people in its care, he says. So many sons, daughters, mothers, and fathers. Sadly, many on the staff see those individuals only as offenders. Because of that, the kind of medical care and attention a person can reasonably expect from those caring for him is often not provided in the prison-jail setting. He admits that he made mistakes. 
I alone am responsible for the choices that I made that led to my incarceration, he says. But I didn't hurt anyone, and I lost my freedom for a time and gained a criminal record as a consequence. I never expected something like this could happen, though. The details are gruesome, but Tanner feels that they should be widely shared. I hope that by shining some light on my case, it might encourage a DOC staff member to take a moment next time and reconsider their actions before immediately disregarding a person in their care that may be in danger just because he's incarcerated, he says. No amount of money can give me back what I've lost, Tanner acknowledges, but this settlement will afford me a real opportunity to begin finally putting this behind me. Pickleball Construction Greenlit Again in Centennial Under Strict New Rules by Katie Cheshire After nearly five hours of deliberation and a six-month ban, Centennial City Council approved an emergency ordinance on Tuesday, September 19th, allowing the construction of pickleball courts more than 250 feet away from homes, but with strict rules requiring permitting and noise testing for those located within 250 to 600 feet. As I said to many people today, there's nothing like walking in a room when you know half of the people are going to hate you no matter what you decide, said Centennial Mayor Stephanie Pico at Tuesday's council meeting. Still, the city council knew it had to do something, because the six-month ban, also known as pickleball moratorium, it had placed on new construction of courts in the city expires at the end of this month. Without some sort of decision on September 19th, there would have been no regulation on construction, leaving the city vulnerable to courts being constructed too close to homes and disturbing the peace of nearby neighbors. We need to pass this because we have no other choice, Council Member Don Sheehan said. We have a moratorium that's expiring, and we have nothing on the books that does anything to stop the noise that's going to impact our citizens. Centennial placed the moratorium on the paddle sport in March, after worries about the noise of the game spread across the country, including in Denver, where noise complaints caused a shutdown of the popular pickleball courts at Congress Park. In Centennial, there are only two permanent courts, but a proposed development that suggested putting in many more has caused an upheaval among residents. Providing multiple outdoor pickleball courts in a social venue will do nothing but harm the community long-term, said resident Stephanie Samaras at the March moratorium meeting. This will not be only a weekend annoyance for the surrounding communities, but also unsettling for those working from home during the weekdays. The city wound up taking six months to study the issue and come up with a plan. The resulting ordinance specified that noise from pickleball must not exceed 47 decibels, as measured at the nearest property. Additionally, play is only allowed from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., and temporary courts, those where people lay lines and set up nets each day and then take them down, can't be within 350 feet of residences. Not everyone was pleased with the results. The public came out in droves, both for and against the proposal, which originally suggested that courts could be within 100 feet of homes, provided they met the 47 decibel guidelines, before a last-minute change. Your proposal of 47 decibels is absurd to me when normal conversation is actually 60 decibels, said Heidi Parrish, a centennial resident and an audiologist, 
at Tuesday's City Council meeting. Tennis and pickleball actually have the same average decibel count, she added. I think the real gripe here with pickleball seems to be about annoyance, and that's a major slippery slope, I would say, because one could find an annoyance in so many other things, like traffic noise. Others don't think the proposed ordinance went far enough, with many calling on the city council to require that courts be at least 350 feet from homes. I sort of have to end with a biblical phrase, said resident Larry Berliner, who advocated for the longer distance. Let my people go. After public comment, a professional noise consultant named Lance Willis testified on Tuesday night, telling council members that a pickleball court being within 100 feet that still meets the under 47 decibels requirement would be an extremely rare case. He also explained that sound comparisons of pickleball to other noises aren't always accurate because pickleball creates impulsive sound when paddles thwack the ball rather than a consistent sound that will eventually blur into the background of someone's life. The standard that we're using is an assessment of annoyance, not simply loudness, Willis said, of how the city should evaluate noise and mitigation before permitting new courts. What people respond to with the paddle impacts is the peak pressure, which is much higher than the background noise. Willis shared that he's rarely been asked to evaluate other sports, including tennis, for noise concerns. He's looked into basketball a few times, but said it never went anywhere. According to Willis, it's very hard to predict how sound will look at certain sites because it has to do with conditions, such as geometry and topography of the surrounding area. As a result, a decibel measure in sound analysis could be more effective than a mere distance requirement. Tuesday's meeting evolved into a lesson on sound and sound engineering at one point, with Mayor Pro Tem Richard Holt thanking Willis for his patience. We're not trying to pick on you, Holt said warmly. We're down to decibels and distance here, and we are seriously trying to find the sweet spot on this. Even after Willis's explanations, the council wasn't quite sure how to proceed. We've had public comment tonight that if this ordinance is passed as written, it will end pickleball in Centennial. So that's one opinion, said council member Mike Sutherland. We've had other members of the public urge us to simply adopt a 350-foot distance standard no matter what. So we've got two extremes here. Under a 350-foot distance requirement, the city concluded in its report that most parks across the city wouldn't be able to build pickleball courts at all. Therefore, Sutherland wanted to find something between 100 feet and 350 feet to allow the sport and also protect homeowners. Despite the eventual outcome, things looked hopeless for a moment. We need to look at this ordinance. It needs some more work, said Councilmember Candace Moon, before suggesting that the council hold a second meeting before voting. I could not listen to public comment and read all the emails that I read and think we are protecting our citizens to the maximum. Mayor Pico got the group to persist, however, and everyone voted yes just before midnight. Luckily for picklers, it's not the end of the road for the sport's future in Centennial, with the council vowing to return to the concept and work more things out. I think it's important that we pass this and then come back and revise it, Sheehan concluded. So Many Roads Brewery Closing Yet Again After Liquor License Violation by Katie Cheshire 
So Many Roads Brewery will close for 90 days starting October 1st after reaching a settlement with the City of Denver over selling alcohol to a minor, according to the Department of Excise and Licenses. This isn't the first time the Grateful Dead-themed bar, which doubles as a live music venue, has hit a speed bump and been forced to shutter following repeated problems with its liquor license, but it could be the last. As a result of this settlement, the brewery's liquor and cabaret licenses will now be held in abeyance for a year, which puts them at risk of being revoked for good if there are any violations during that time frame. Should the respondent violate the terms contained in this order and or the settlement agreement, the dance cabaret and brew pub liquor licenses shall be revoked, in addition to any penalty for the new violation, reads a September 20th order from Molly Dupulchin, Executive Director of Excise and Licenses. Dupulchin's order approves a September 18th settlement between so many roads in the Denver City Attorney's Office. She previously rejected a similar deal on September 7th, causing the parties to head back to the drawing board. Now, the results are officially in. The penalty to be imposed for the violations admitted in paragraph 1 shall be closure of the applicant's premises for 90 days, her order declares. So many roads, located at 918 West 1st Avenue, admitted to three separate violations of state law related to serving alcohol to a minor. These violations had required the business to show why its liquor and cabaret licenses shouldn't be revoked after it violated the agreement it reached with the city in October of 2022 over selling alcohol to minors, along with disorderly behavior and distribution of controlled substances. The So Many Roads settlement over those allegations stipulated that if any additional violations occurred over the next year, the space would get hit with an automatic 45-day closure. The below closure period includes the imp- imposition of the previously held in abeyance 45 days of closure from the October 12, 2022 order accepting settlement, as well as an additional 45 days of closure for the new violation, Dupulchian's September 20th order clarifies. The new violations at so many roads were uncovered through a Denver Police Department operation in February when an underage DPD cadet who possessed a vertical Colorado driver's license with under 21 printed on it attempted to enter the brewery with an undercover officer. Both were allowed in. Upon entering the bar area, the underage cadet went to the bar and ordered two Coors Light beers from a white male with gray hair who was working as a bartender, alleges a show-cause order issued by the city in June. This bartender was later identified as J.M. Bianchi, date of birth 6-22-1968. Bianchi served the two beers to the underage client, for which the underage cadet paid a total of $10 in cash. Last fall's So Many Roads controversy was closely linked to a licensing case in which a bartender sold cocaine to an undercover cop, causing another bar linked to Jay Bianchi, Sancho's Broken Arrow, to close for good. Both venues were once owned by the promoter and infamous Deadhead. In 2020, while facing sexual assault allegations, Bianchi transferred ownership of Sancho's to Tyler Bishop and Timothy Premis. Bishop took over as sole owner of So Many Roads. Though he no longer runs so many roads, Bianchi has been involved throughout the establishment's licensing saga, 
even helping to organize a fundraiser to keep the venue afloat last November. Whether a similar effort may be needed to help the space navigate the new closure is unclear. Neither Bishop and his lawyer, nor Bianchi, responded to requests for comment. Regardless, from October 1st to December 29th, so many roads will officially close its doors. During this time, a sign that says, Alcohol beverage licenses issued for these premises have been suspended by the order of the local licensing authority for violation of the Colorado Liquor Beer Code, must be posted where it can be viewed by someone standing near the front door. Respondent shall prohibit all public entry and access to the premises, the excise and licenses order explains. Respondent's manager and employees may be present inside the licensed premises to conduct other operations, such as repairs, cleaning, or inventory. During the suspension and closure, respondent and its managers, employees, agents, and patrons shall not sell, serve, give away, or consume any alcoholic beverages on the licensed premises. New Frontiers How the Jamgrass Genre Originated in Colorado by Nick Hutchinson After originating in such places as the Telluride Bluegrass Festival, Jamgrass music has blazed a storied path through Colorado and beyond. Since the early days, when the free-flowing spirit of rock first intertwined with the traditional tones of the hills, a wide variety of artists have worked the bluegrass and improvisation-rooted genre into unforeseen shapes. The following acts, which are all tied to the centennial state, indelibly carve their names on the flourishing tree of the genre and continue to inspire emerging generations of pickers, grinners, and sonic adventurers. Dive into the state's jamgrass roots with these ten bands, organized chronologically. Chris Daniels Denver resident and band leader Chris Daniels of Chris Daniels and the Kings has long had a foot in jam and acoustic music, going back to the heady days when the Telluride Bluegrass Festival was in its infancy. His early 70s group, Magic Music, is often described as Colorado's original jam band, with Daniels singing and picking on multiple instruments, including banjo, mandolin, and guitar. In the early 80s, he began hosting all-star after-hour jams at the Sheridan Opera House in Telluride, giving birth to what became the well-appreciated Nightgrass series at the Telluride Festival. Daniels has also performed and recorded with David Bromberg, a pioneer of the acoustic meets rock sound that evolved into what is now commonly referred to as jamgrass. Hot Rise With a progressive flair, the members of Hot Rise were architects of new acoustic music, laying the groundwork for what would emerge in Colorado over the following decades. Coming together on the front range in the 70s, they nodded toward tradition, wearing suits and crafting a sound that dipped into the old-time well of mountain music all while expanding on their traditional form. Among other things, their neckties were brightly colored. They simultaneously fielded an alter-ego, western swing band called Red Knuckles and the Trailblazers. They included an electric bass guitar, considered heretical by bluegrass purists, and their banjo player ran his plucks through a phase shifter effects pedal. Some bluegrass elders gasped, while other enthusiasts applauded and took notes for the future. Leftover Salmon Regularly citing Hot Rise, the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, the Seldom Scene, and David Bromberg as some of its key influences, 
Leftover salmon represents the spirit of jamgrass like few others. It could even be argued that the band is a living manifestation of the genre in Colorado. Leftover salmon formed in late 1989 after fusing mandolin player Drew Emmett's left-hand string band and singer-guitarist Vince Herman's Zydeco-inspired salmon heads. Cleverly dubbing its sound polyethnic Cajun slamgrass, Leftover Salmon brings a much-appreciated speed, attitude, and variety to the tradition. The bandmates' primal cry of fest of all ringing from the stage lets audiences know that communal joy is at hand, along with the instrumental prowess and authenticity that underscore the sensation of taking in live roots music under the Colorado sky. String Cheese Incident Taking inspiration from such bands as Leftover Salmon, The Grateful Dead, and even Talking Heads, String Cheese Incident seamlessly combines elements of bluegrass with a variety of influences, including rock, world music, and electronica. An enterprising and self-determined outfit, Cheese started its own record label, SCI Fidelity, in Boulder in the late 90s, shortly after moving to the front range from Crested Butte. Similar to Salmon, the band forged its popularity by hitting the road nationally, spreading the jamgrass sound far and wide by tour bus and bringing the Colorado Hippie Music Festival vibe to venues across the land. Live cheese sets range from the acoustic leanings of Flat and Scruggs to electronic keyboard-inflected explorations and then back to the campfire tunes. The band celebrated its 30th anniversary this year and played its 50th Red Rocks show during its traditional run in July. Yonder Mountain String Band Grabbing the baton from leftover salmon and string cheese incident while plowing the same trail down the foothills, Yonder Mountain String Band locked into the sweet spot between the technological advances in acoustic amplification and the authenticity of the bluegrass sound. Starting in the late 90s in Nederland, the late Jeff Austin helped the group to take the music of the hills to a more rock-influenced space, extending the group's jams and infusing them with a harder edge when the mood hit. The band still plays on, having become a highly acclaimed and widely appreciated Colorado outfit that represents what can be achieved when the right elements coalesce under the right conditions, in the right place, and at the right time. Green Sky Bluegrass While several of its members hail from Michigan, Green Sky Bluegrass considers the Centennial State its home base these days. The band, which added the acclaimed Dobroist and former Colorado resident Anders Beck in 2007, describes its music as its own version of bluegrass. Green Sky plays popular two- and three-night runs at Red Rocks annually, with its live shows incorporating electric effects and dazzling light shows. Unlike Salmon and Cheese, Green Sky is a drumless outfit, but still brings the no-holds-barred rock-and-roll vibe to its pluck, deftly covering artists such as Pink Floyd in traffic while creating heaps of its own compelling material. The Infamous String Dusters The Dusters cut their teeth learning to play traditional bluegrass around Nashville, but these days they consider Colorado home, regularly performing on the rocks and at imminent Colorado festivals such as Telluride Bluegrass and Rocky Grass after first recording music in 2006. The band's banjo picker, 
Denver resident Chris Panda Pandolfi is a jamgrass enthusiast, regularly writing and blogging about the genre and its origins, as well as an accomplished traditional-style banjo picker with a reverence for Earl Scruggs. The Grammy-winning string dusters bring the heat to covers by artists as disparate as The Cure and Fish, while being able to throw down hard-scrabble bluegrass and country-influenced jams at the drop of a thumb pick. Elephant Revival Calling its music transcendental folk, Elephant Revival is a prime example of how the spirit of jamgrass and progressive bluegrass has impacted a subsequent generation of players in Colorado. The Netherlands-based outfit, which originally took shape in Oklahoma and has played alongside with many big names in the jam and roots music world, nods to styles from Celtic fiddling to indie rock. While Elephant Revival went on hiatus a few years back, it returned for a handful of shows in 2022. The band was founded in 2006 by multi-instrumentalist Bonnie Payne on the washboard and musical saw, among other implements. Vocalist fiddle player Bridget Law, who had left the band, had also returned to its lineup. Trout Steak Revival Trout Steak formed in the Mile High City in 2009 when its members came together at a regular weekend jam session. Since then, the group has created a folk, pop, and bluegrass-grounded feel that resonates with fans of multiple genres, as evidenced by its winning the prestigious Telluride Band Competition in 2014. The group's banjo player, Travis McNamara, recently released a solo record that pushes the boundaries of his traditional roots to incorporate indie rock-flavored songs and electric tones. TSR is yet another example of Colorado's draw for musicians who seek to express their creativity while embracing the well-established precedent for what might be done when acoustic music is made amid the setting of the rocking mountains. Big Richard Shattering the grass ceiling one gig at a time, Big Richard is an all-women jam grass adjacent band that delivers the sonic goods in buckets, winning a 2023 Best of Denver Award for Best Bluegrass Band. With its acoustic four-piece lineup, the group pushes the boundaries of the bluegrass and old-time mindset to entirely new places. Embracing both progressive and traditional influences, Big Richard applies fiery instrumental solos while also creating delicate spaces as a whole, weaving compelling harmonies with Celtic influences and classical notes. The group's singer and mandolin player, Bonnie Sims, counts Sam Bush and Newgrass Revival among her early influences, though the band goes as far afield as playing covers of songs by alternative groups, including Radiohead. Big Richard was also at Rocky Grass this summer. MSU Denver is ready to unveil its new Charlie Papa Zion Brewing Education Lab by Ryan Packmeyer. This is more experiential than what it used to be, says Bernardo Alatore, Brewery Operations Program Coordinator and Lecturer at Metropolitan State University of Denver of the school's new brew lab, which is named after Charlie Papazion, a lifetime educator, former longtime president of the Brewers Association, and the most recognizable name in the home brewing world. Previously, students could visit and learn about the equipment at the Tivoli Brew House on campus, but couldn't actually operate it. Tivoli itself has stopped using that brew house, and the potential for another tenant is on the horizon, 
But no matter what happens, the uncertainty surrounding that situation is less of a factor for the school's brewing program now. The Charlie Papazian Brewing Educational Lab cost approximately $2 million to build, with around 25% of that total coming from industry donors, and it will be utilized by three brewing classes at the school this fall. This was an excellent fit for my philosophy of learning. They had a much smaller system before, so now they'll have a working system the size of a small professional brewery, Papa Zion says, adding that this gives students the opportunity to understand the real-life challenges faced by an actual brewery. The brewing system is from Forgeworks out of Ridgeway, and students like Lee Nelson, who is also the lead brewer at Station 26, are already excited about using it. She reiterates that there are several advantages to the new lab, including an opportunity to learn on equipment that is more similar to systems out in the field. She also notes that the new lab will allow students to better mimic the actual process flow that is utilized in larger facilities, including scheduling and timeliness. According to Alatori, the new 3.5 barrel, about 108 gallons, system will provide students with the ability to brew professional sized batches of beer. The brewery operations class will make two different brat batches, applying principles from workload manufacturing in the first, then focusing on process control, process design, and cost management in order to optimize the second batch. A second class, called sensory analysis, will brew a batch that is a clone of a commercial recipe. That group will do sensory characterization on the batch, tasting the wort during the brewing process, the beer as it ferments, and then, finally, the completed project. Brewing, science, and technologies will be the third class to make use of the new brewing system. That class will look at yeast growth, attenuation, color variation, and potentially even biotransformation of the hops. The MSU Brewing Program currently has 39 students enrolled. With the addition of the Papa Zion Lab, the expectation is to see the program grow in the near future. Nelson hopes that the addition of the lab will lead to students shaping their own experience as the space develops within the program. There is so much more to brewery operations than making and tasting beer, says Nelson. The scientific, business, and creative elements available to students in this program are large. Papa Zion echoes, echoes those sentiments. Having a broad-based knowledge of all the decision-making processes in the beer business is of real value, he says. Even for a marketing person, software engineer, or packaging person, just knowing what's going on through the process of making the beer, selling the beer, and getting it to the consumer in good condition is very helpful. It rounds out your knowledge and helps people make better decisions. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.